Hello and welcome to the Nourish Circle podcast. I am Lori Schwartzamudio, a registered dietitian who lives and works in the greater Toronto area in Canada, and I'm host of this podcast. Join me as I have conversations with some badass practitioners working in the health at every size and non-diet spaces. My hope is that through this podcast, we can create a circle of humans that continue to nourish us wherever we are on our particular journey. So today, our guest is Beth Frozen. She is a non-diet registered dietitian and owner of Goodness Gracious Living Nutrition. Beth has a bachelor's degree in dietetics from the University of Maryland and a master's degree in nutrition education from Columbia University and has been working in the field for over 20 years. She has a private practice in Southbury, Connecticut, and has helped her clients find relief from digestive disorders such as irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, uh, SIBO, gastroparesis, colitis, and GERD, as well as share her knowledge as a GI dietitian with other health professionals via webinars and clinical supervision. Beth has also designed techniques and programs to empower chronic dieters disordered eaters, and those in eating disorder recovery to mend their relationship with food and their bodies. She has written for major online and print publications, such as Huffington Post and Fabuplus Magazine, and is a recurring guest on the Fox 61 Morning Show in Hartford, Connecticut. I really enjoyed this conversation with Beth. One of the things that was super cool for me is a person who lives with Crohn's disease to talk to a GI-specific dietitian who works in the non-diet space something that I hadn't really experienced personally um, through the course of my disease. I had connected with Beth on uh, Twitter, I think it was actually. Uh, She had posted a tweet about calories being put on menus and the effects that that does have on those going through eating disorder recovery, as well as chronic dieters who are constantly uh, counting their, their calories when they're out. Um, and so that's how I actually reached out to her to um, have this conversation. We had met at a conference in, oh my goodness, it feels so long ago now, but it was only May of 2019, um, the Netic conference in Toronto. And I've been keeping an eye on her work because I just, I love what she does and it's super fascinating. Um, you can find her on Instagram at goodnessgraciousliving or on Twitter at ggliving. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Um, Again, because I am so far behind in editing and putting things out. um, The, you know, life is real right now. Um, Still predominantly at home and uh, with kids at home and, you know, just trying to get through like everyone else's. So my um, timelines are all thrown off. So I'm just so appreciative every time you listen. Uh, This interview was recorded the end of May 2020. So um, yeah, it's been almost two months. And I still think it's relevant to the conversation that we are having now. And I really hope you enjoy. Thank you once again for continuing to listen to this podcast. Um, I'm just so grateful to know that it's going out into the world and being listened Hello, Beth. Welcome to the Nourish Circle podcast. Hi, Lori. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to come. 
it's, I'm always excited when I, I get to speak with dietitians because um, I'm always so fascinated in how people have, have kind of carved out their path and, and gotten to where they are. And I'm also really excited when I get to speak to dietitians who I've kind of crossed paths with, um, you know, at, at like, so, like social media and stuff, as well as um, conferences, but then just to kind of sit down and have a conversation that we never really get to have in those other environments. So thank you so much for joining. Um, So I usually like to start off with asking if there are any privileges or identities that you're comfortable sharing with the audience just before we get going into our conversation. Sure. I am a cisgendered female in a um, straight-sized body. Um, I have the financial means to take time away from work to do this. And um, not sure what else, but if there's something else out there, did I say I'm white? I'm white. So like I mentioned, um, I know that you're a dietitian and you also work from the health at every size um, perspective. And I know this is a super huge question, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to your practice as a whole, how you became a dietitian, your path, because you work with eating disorders and GI patients, as well as being non-diet and haze. And however, this question kind of inspires you to answer. Um, I'm cool with, I'm just, I'm always fascinated with how we got to where we are. Yeah. So um, I started college as an advertising design major. Uh, I really (laughs) wanted to be an art major, like an art studio, like you know, be an artist kind of thing. And I think if I was allowed to do that, which I wasn't, um, because my parents weren't going to pay for school if I wanted to paint, um, (laughs) that um, I think I probably would have ended up in art therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. But I ended up not really liking using my artistic ability um, for somebody else's needs. I wanted to really keep it for myself after that. And I switched to journalism, which was interesting and lasted about a year. And I was like, this isn't a fit for me. And I remember exactly where I was standing on campus when I called my mother and said, I don't know what to do. And she said, well, why don't you look into nutrition? Because you know a lot about it. Um, And the reason I knew a lot about it is because I started my first diet at nine, which was supported by my family. Mm-hmm. Um, I come from a long line of disordered eaters. There's a lot of, um, you know, um, I would say generational trauma from mm-hmm. it. Um, and, um, and, you know, they come from the same diet culture that I come out of. And yet it affected the generations before me more than it impacted me because there was something that I said, like, I need to prove my mom wrong. I need to prove everybody wrong. This is not how it should be working. And um, I went to school the traditional way for dietetics. I got my degree, got my master's, sat for my exam, became a dietitian and said, I'm not going into weight management because even though I'm in a straight size, I'm on the upper end of straight sizes. And I don't think people are going to believe me if I say I have the magic pill for this right? (laughs) because I wasn't necessarily the ideal body and at that point in my life I really thought that um, my body was my calling card for this and I just couldn't get it to be what I wanted it to be Um, so instead of trying to make it that way through further disordered eating um, I decided just to stay away from weight management and I went into what's now called corporate wellness but at the time was health education or it was like public health education and did that for a number of years and then switched into 
um, some school nutrition work where uh, I was writing curriculum and helping to overhaul um, school nutrition programs. And um, then I took a pretty long baby break. Mm. I have two kids. And when I ended up going back, um, I felt like, um, well, I sort of went back because there was a lot of, a lot of, I don't even know how to put this, <laughs> a lot of, of multi-level marketing companies popping up, oh, selling yes, yeah. um, smoothies and shakes and cleanses and all this bullshit. And yeah. I was like, and these women in my town were, were going, you know, were selling it. And I was like, they don't have a degree. They don't know what harm they're doing. And I was like, oh, putting out the, the shingle, I am open for business. That's and awesome. So, yeah. So I just started like breaking down those ideas. Like you don't need to do that. You can eat food, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't even haze yet. It was just like, no, no, you have food and you have a liver and you have lungs and you have skin and kidneys. So you don't need cleanses. Yes. Um, let's just eat. Right? Yeah. Let's just eat food. Right. Yeah. And I think once, you know, once I got back into the field and I, and then the internet was around cause you know, now I'm really dating myself. college. <laughs> there was no internet when I was in college. <laughs> it like showed up as I was leaving. Um, so there was no ability to like search for this stuff. But in, in grad school, I read intuitive eating. I read mm -hmm. Overcoming Overeating, like these mindful books. Mm -hmm. I just didn't think it was for me because I didn't trust or I was afraid to let go of dieting for myself, you know, for fear that something would happen bad to me or my family wouldn't accept me or whatever it was that sort of was ingrained in me about if my body was bigger, how I would be treated or if I would be worthy or any of those things. Mm -hmm. um, and then I did come across mindful eating, which was like dipping my toe into health at every size, because I think they sort of go together in a way. There is still, you know, can be diet stuff in mindful eating, but I think just oh, yeah. being aware and listening to cues and things like that was like my first foray into, yeah, I can do this. This makes sense. And from there, it just sort of um, snowballed. And I got very involved in the, the Hayes community and um, started to um, give workshops and grew my practice. And what I found was um, I could use the Hayes approach in medical nutrition therapy um, without ever putting anyone on a restrictive diet. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in GI health because I have GI issues. So for me, it was like, oh, I can heal myself, I can heal my gut, and I don't have to be on a diet to do it. And in fact, dieting is probably what made this worse, right? Yeah. So um, I started working in GI health and getting some um, supervision and taking lots of CEUs in that field. And then what I discovered is that lots of folks that were coming to me because I screen all my clients for disordered eating were disordered eaters or had eating disorders that were not necessarily diagnosed. So mm -hmm. I think that's how my practice really sprouted into this part eating disorder recovery and part GI health. Um, because if you had a Venn diagram, they cross in the middle. Yes, they do. Yeah. And yeah. there's, there's research that shows that up to 98% of folks with eating disorders develop some kind of functional GI disorder while they're in the throes of the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And 
On the other side, about 16% of folks with GI disorders develop maladaptive eating behaviors. So they both sort of, you know, you could say which came first. I think the eating disorder comes first most of the time, but sometimes people develop such food fear with their GI disorders that they start to cut foods out thinking that it will help and it doesn't help, but they don't have the food back in. So they come to me and they're like eating three things and they don't know what else to cut out. And eventually I have to say it's like either it's not the food or it's the fact that you're not eating, you know, so some of those things come into play. So I think that's how it, it sort of bloomed into its, its space. My practice was that I, I carved out this niche for people who um, are open to working on their bodies from a place of health and well-being rather than trying to get them small. Yes. I think that's super cool. I loved right near the beginning of that when you said that you didn't start doing uh, weight management because you felt that your body would be a calling card and that you didn't fit into that kind of ideal, um, like what society thinks is ideal bodies. And I think as dietitians, oftentimes that the body does get used as a calling card. And it definitely does. Yeah. And there's it, a lot of privilege in that too, because plenty so of naturally thin women come into this um, field and then use their bodies as their billboard and social media. And then people think, oh, if I work with them, mm-hmm. rather than thinking like, oh, what's in her head? Like, what knowledge does she have? How does her brain work? You know, those kinds of things. What's her compassion level? And, and things like that, rather than, oh, what size pants does she wear? I think I'll work with her. <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. And I've heard people pick their, um, their dietitians based on this before. In fact, I've been told personally that I was not small enough to work with and they would prefer to work with the dietitian down the hall. Um, And people are pretty blunt about that. And I do remember saying, you know nothing about what I think or what I know. Right. (laughs) Right. And yeah, it was just, it was really interesting to me the way you um, brought that up. And one thing I I just, I was thinking of when you were speaking there is that I don't think a lot of people who work in GI screen for eating disorders. And, you know, and that's where my new focus is. I have a real passion in having GI dietitians understand the importance of doing that. And I actually, I, um, I gave a webinar yesterday to um, one of the dietetic practice groups called um, Dietitians in Medical Nutrition Therapy that's part of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics in the U.S. Um, about the importance of screening for eating disorders, what to look for, what tools to use, and not to treat the GI issue. You have yeah. to treat the, the, the eating disorder issue first. And a lot of times the GI issue will remedy itself once the eating disorder is on its way to recovery. And if you are not trained in eating disorders, then you should refer out and mm-hmm. not hold on to that client. So that's, you know, what I was, that's one of the things that I was teaching yesterday. And you know, I got really good feedback on it. And I think it's important that um, we as GI dietitians make sure we're not doing any additional harm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because um, I a hundred percent agree with the, when you feel pain from food, you want to stop the pain um, 
like I'm thinking from a Crohn's perspective because right. that's what I live with. Um, you feel pain with the food, so you want to stop the pain. And so it, you associate it with the food, not with the fact that your gut's swollen up and inflamed and whatever you're eating is probably going to cause pain, right? Like I think right. that become, and then you just start narrowing, 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 narrowing until everything is scared. I remember being 22 and for a week, I think I just ate um, takeout french fries. Because for some reason, takeout french fries didn't hurt. Mm -hmm. But I got super, super narrow. And I remember thinking, oh, no, this is, this is not, we're not going down a really good path right now by only right. eating food. But I think it's so easy to get there. Um, and when you start to feel a little bit better, you sit there. Yes, and you stay with those foods. Mm -hmm. And I, I also think, like I've had clients come to me and I'll say to them, it's not what you're eating, it's that you're eating, but you still need to eat. Right. Yeah. So we need to figure out what else might be causing this besides food. And for people with irritable bowel syndrome, sometimes it is food. And that's what the low FODMAP diet is yeah. there to discover if food are, is a trigger. And if so, which foods are triggers? And if not, then go ahead and eat everything because food's not the trigger. But also mm -hmm. to realize the role that stress plays and the role that lack of sleep plays and other things that might be causing GI distress. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, some, for something like irritable bowel syndrome and even Crohn's, these diseases have flares. And yep. that's the nature of the disease. And you can't stop your body from flaring ever. Like you're going to have them. What you yep. need to learn how to do is how to manage the flares so maybe it's not as intense or as long. Yeah. Oh, I 100% agree. It's, they are going to happen because life happens. And um, yeah, there's nuance eating is what I say when it comes to that. You know, it's, you can be the dietitian and I, I personally just, it turns into a lot of like uh, white bread and peanut butter for me at that time. That's just, um, what well, I find is important. Yeah. And the peanut butter helps me not get that hungry pain feeling at the same time. Um, but it's interesting because if I spotted eating that in the wild, so, you know, around <laughs> other others who know what I do for a profession, they're like, Oh my gosh, you're eating peanut butter on white bread. And I throw chocolate chips on them because, well, let's just say it makes it taste better. Yeah. Um, and then it, it turns into this whole conversation of shouldn't you be eating the fiber bread? It's like, no, that hurts. Um, so it's so fascinating because even when you're probably sitting with clients in the office talking about these things and, and how to negotiate that, that world of eating foods that make them feel better um, or decrease the pain or the severity, then they have to go out into the world of diet culture. Yeah. And I like to tell my clients that what's healthy for one person is not healthy for another person. So you gave a great example where like the, the, you know, general public will say, Ooh, high fiber is really important. You can't eat refined grains. It's not good for you, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Right. But for someone like you, who's in a flare, white bread makes you feel good. So you are healthy when you're eating the white bread. And I would say the same for people with gastroparesis, which is a delayed yes. gastric emptying. They can't eat fiber. It slows down their digestion. They get sick, they vomit, it's not good. So mm -hmm. if they're eating white bread, they're probably feeling a lot better in their bodies. So I think we need to redefine what healthy is. And it's not related to a size and it's not related to a specific diet. Oh, I love that so much. I, yeah, I just love that. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Um, we, you spoke a little bit about the FODMAP diet. And I know in the last couple of years, it's kind of blown up. Um, I, I hear it all the time. My, my own personal GI doctor asked me um, if I knew much about it. And um, 
and I see a lot of um, um, like social media posts and stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you find people are jumping into it on their own and maybe kind of getting a little bit disordered with eating because of that? Or because it's something, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's something that I look at and I think should be done in conjunction with someone who fully understands how to eliminate and put back in and assess what's working or not. Yeah, I think that a lot of people get information off of Dr. Google and yes. then they sit there and try to do it themselves. And what ends up happening is they remove foods they feel good, they never add foods back. Or they remove foods that with a very black and white thinking without realizing that there are many of the foods that are considered high FODMAP that at a low portion they can still enjoy, um, even if they are high FODMAP at a larger portion, right? So um, I, I think what is great about high FODMAP getting out there is that when there's consumer demand, that means that the food companies will step up and start making some products that aren't like yep. chock full of garlic and onions for those who are in, during the elimination phase who find it very hard to find things without that, at least here in the US. Um, but on the other side, I think it's really important that if you're going to do any dietary intervention, uh, to do it with a dietitian who's trained in it because the low FODMAP diet is a three-phase diet. The first phase is the shortest, and that's the elimination phase, for as short as two weeks. So it's mm -hmm. not long-term at all, but you need to know what you're doing before you ramp on. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it's not going to work or you're going to blame other foods and take those out. Um, a lot of times when I have clients come to me and they've tried it on their own, they've cut out so many foods and so, so many foods that are even low FODMAP that sometimes we work first on increasing their food repertoire with foods that would be quote unquote safe during the low FODMAP uh, elimination phase mm -hmm. um, and get their, their diet liberalized and then start to test triggers. Like get them feeling safe around foods that I know for sure won't ferment in the gut and go yeah. from there. That sounds great. Have you had anyone try the low FODMAP diet as a diet? You know, um, I haven't yet, but it's coming. I know it's coming because yeah. what happened to the gluten-free diet? And I, you know, oh, I, know. I say it, that that fad, and it's lasted a long time, but that fad has been wonderful for people with celiac disease because now there are like shelves, shelves yes. full of food, right? So that yeah. again, that consumer um, need mm -hmm. promotes these foods, but I also see the opposite side of it, which is like now I'm seeing food that says "quote unquote" keto friendly. Yes. Why? Like, why? Don't don't put that on food. We don't need to see that. Um, that's not a diet that that's first of all supposed to be done by adults. It was meant for children with epilepsy. It slows brain function, and it mm -hmm. was supposed to be done in a hospital setting. So the fact that people are doing it on their own as adults, like, why would you want to do anything that slows your brain function? I, I know. No. I don't understand that one. No. Um, we went by a, a bus ad that was an ad for keto pizza and my youngest child was saying what is this keto thing i keep seeing it on this and this i was like oh god it's you know permeated eight-year-olds oh yeah um, it's yeah and it's interesting i say exactly the same thing about the gluten-free foods i'm like it's annoying when you go to a restaurant because of the fad kind of take on it because people say oh it's okay i can eat a little bit or whatever but the fact that the um variety of foods has expanded exponentially like I can eat five different cereals out of my kitchen right now is super exciting yes. so yeah the sometimes the fad things aren't 
terrible sometimes. <laughs> right. For the folks who really, really need, need it. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's, again, I think that that GI eating disorder combination is something that we really need to step up with um, in, in, you know, probably both the States and Canada, just to really start screening individuals and really digging down into those eating behaviors. Um, because I know from a specialist point of view, um, you, most GI doctors weigh you every appointment. Um, and then even though um, I know from a Crohn's perspective, it's if your weight goes down, we, the doctor gets concerned about illness, but then also will congratulate you for your weight going down at the same time. <laughs> um, and it's very, it's, it's, it's such dissonance that it, it's always, I can only imagine with someone who doesn't have an extensive background in kind of those things, what they must feel like in that room. Oh, totally. Um, I mean, it's yeah. happened to me. I had a, um, I had C. difficile, which is a bacterial infection in my gut, which triggered irritable bowel syndrome for me about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was, it took a while to figure out what it was. And I had lost some weight and my doctor congratulated me. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like I haven't gotten off the toilet in like oh weeks. And I can only, like you said, you can only eat the, um, the French fries. Yeah. I could, I, the only thing I was able to tolerate were like pita chips. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, I- I'm eating like a, you know, like a mouse here. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. You could just compliment me. I, this is the sickest I've ever felt in my life. And that's where it's again, like body size does not equal health. Not at all. And you can be thin and be sick and you can be in a big body and be healthy and vice versa. You can't tell what somebody, what somebody's health is from their outsides. No, no, not at all. We need to see inside and you can't do that just by looking at someone. And the only thing you could tell from someone's outside is your level of weight bias. Exactly. And that is one of my favorite statements um, ever that I've ever heard. And I keep reminding people of that. Um, One of the things that, um, well, I reached out to you after um, we had a conversation on social media about um, food companies kind of jumping into the diet world. Um, You posted something on, I think it was originally on Twitter and then went on Instagram, but you wrote, I'm allowed to call out companies, right? That you tweet about? I think so. I'm going to. So disappointed that at Panera Bread teamed up with that WWS to put points on menu. Um, dieting is a top cause of eating disorders. Go back to serving delicious food without a side of diet culture and dropping the clean shit would be good too. Hashtag <laughs> um, Oh, I totally said the word that you didn't write out, but that's okay. Um, I mean, I put an asterisk in there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I said shit because I felt it was appropriate. It is. There, there's my editing. Um, and it's... I, I, yeah, I just, I was wanting to talk to you about that a little bit because you work with clients who, um, you know, with GI stuff and eating disorders and you're probably working really hard to, you know, heal their relationships with food and their bodies. And then they go to Panera for a sandwich and boom, there's the points. <laughs> it's the points and the calories. And the calories, it's yeah. It's both. It's like, shoot all the numbers at you that will make you feel shame and guilt about what you choose but please order food here yeah you know i just i it makes no sense to me the i have plenty of clients that come to me and don't want to eat at restaurants that put their um their calories on the menu but in connecticut we followed suit uh, uh that happened in new york where that was the first state to put calories on um on the menus or on ordering boards you know when you go into mm-hmm. a fast food place or whatever and I just think it's so unnecessary. If you want to know that information, go on the website. 
you know, and I feel like, and I, and I've said this before, um, calories count in that they're necessary for life, but Mm -hmm. calories don't need to be counted, right? It's like almost an arbitrary number because the food companies that decide what, how many calories are in something, yes, they've tested their foods, but foods change constantly. Like even like the soil makeup of the lettuce will change the water content, will change the cat. Like it's so, the biochemistry in food is so much more than calories, oh, right? Yeah. And so to count numbers that are somewhat arbitrary, and then on the other side, the calories out are arbitrary too, because we don't know what our metabolisms are doing from day to day. We don't know how much, how much energy our brains are using from day to day. It's not just about exercise and movement. It's just about like thinking in a heartbeat, right? So yeah. it all is just such a waste of time um, and, and energy, and it causes such pain and, and shame that it would make much more sense when your body gives you the signal that you're hungry, eat something. Mm-hmm. When your body gives you the signal that you're full, stop. And if that food causes pain, eat something different. And if it doesn't, enjoy it again another time. Like that's that's the basis of it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit more in depth than that, but it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be so much um, about the points and the calories and the macros and all that stuff. Oh, I know. I remember the very first time I saw calories on um, the menu board. We were traveling, so we were in the States. And I ordered something and I was like, oh, can I get the medium size? And the person looked at me and said, there's only two sizes. I'm like, no, you have four prices up there. (laughs) And they were like, no, it's price, calories, price, calories. And I didn't really pay attention to the numbers, to be honest. And if I'd looked at them, I probably would have realized that the it didn't drive, but um, I just looked and saw four slots and I decided I wanted the medium. Um, but it was kind of blowing my mind and my husband's family is in is American in the States. And um, I remember asking my mother-in-law about it. it. And it's one of those things that just makes me think of as dietitians, what can we do to kind of combat that mental math and you know get people to only look at the price or do you know what I mean like what can we do I mean I try to make light of it with my clients because it's so triggering for so many of them and say things like think of it as like the item number like it's not you know it's item number 1210 with the dressing (laughs) (laughs) whatever it is you know it's don't think of it as calories. Think, come up with another thing that it could be. Like mm-hmm. it's the time. It's you know the date stamp. It's goodbye or whatever. You know. So um, I try to get them not to look at that or to decide what they like um, by looking at the photos of on the menu and not yeah. not the descriptions because that's where um, the calories are. You know, a lot of times mm-hmm. on those order boards, uh, it's hard. It's hard to help people reprogram their brains from diet culture to a health at every size paradigm. But once they're able to um, to get mad at diet culture and break up with it, mm-hmm. uh, they they can maybe give a big middle finger to those numbers and order whatever the heck they want. Yes. Yeah, and I think I also wonder. I we do work with breaking up with diet culture, um, but when you have kids learning how to read off menus and seeing that for the first time and maybe not even really understanding anything, but they're just kind of soaking up that information. Um, Is there any way you can think of, and this is probably very big, but to kind of not let that information get in? I really, you know, it's so hard, but I think Mm -hmm. it's important always to, 
teach your children that there's so much more than a body. Yeah. You know, that I always tell my kids, your body is your vehicle, right? It's not, it's not an ornament to be displayed and it's not what gives you your worth, but it's what carries you to be able to go in, out and do good in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, and, and really teaching them that their worthiness is about their kindness, their character, their integrity, and not about the size of their belly or their butt or whatever else. And yeah. keep telling them that so that when diet culture does hit them, because it's going to, whether the, mm-hmm. it's when they're teenagers or in their phys ed classes, when the teacher wants to weigh them and all the other stuff that goes on in some uh, phys ed classes, yeah. Yeah. Um, that they know deep down that they're accepted by their families, um, that, that what they look like is not what makes them special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so, it's like diet culture is so pervasive and it, it's everywhere. And, and it's just interesting to me because they keep, I don't know, I don't know about in the States, but in Canada, they keep saying it's like a public health initiative. People, yeah. you know, need to know this knowledge. And I'm just like, but what knowledge are you, are you providing people who aren't asking for this knowledge? And it's um, also assuming that if you have that information, you're going to use it to make lower calorie choices that will make your body smaller mm-hmm. and therefore healthier. And all of those steps are wrong. It's yeah. not true. None of it's yeah. true. No, I know. So, it's, it, it's so backwards. Yeah. It makes me so angry. And I didn't even know about the Weight Watchers putting points on. So I couldn't even imagine looking at a menu at Panera and seeing like, Price, calories, points. Like, it's just so much. Yeah. <laughs> I know. My husband used to make a joke about points. And it, it, I mean, it's still funny, but he doesn't do it anymore. But um, he would eat like cheesecake or something that would be, you know, highly caloric. And he would go, two points. <laughs> and then eat it happily, you know. Yeah. Go, just about two points. And he wasn't mm-hmm. on a diet. He just would make fun of Weight Watchers, you know. Yeah. Of, I don't know. He just thought it was funny. Um, but so I think about it now that I want the whole, if they're going to put points on the menu, just want all to be two points, just be two points, <laughs> you know, totally a zero or two. Right. Like, that would be <laughs> I am. Um, I actually learned about points from my oldest child who came home from school because teachers were talking about it. Oh, uh, that is not good. No, that wasn't because she started with how many points is my apple? And I was like, Oh, you get points for eating. I don't know. I thought it was like a game. And she, no 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 you can only eat so many points in a day and and i was like oh oh dear it's exhausting really if you think about it as a parent as a dietitian as a community member the amount of work it takes to be counterculture someone as a health at every size practitioner to have to combat all of these diet culture comments and um, lesson plans and all that goes yeah. with it and try to stop it all. And there are some dietitians that have done some of that work that have created like lunchbox cards that say, don't speak yes. to my child about what they're eating, let them eat mm-hmm. in whatever order they want. Um, you know, there have been people who have stormed the castle of the administration and have gotten curriculum changed. And my hat's off to those folks. Oh, There's just so many spoons we have, right? Yeah. So as much as I want all of that to change, I think the part I can do is to educate my colleagues on screening for these disorders so that we don't make them worse Mm -hmm. and help people get help for them and realize that many a a, many a person with eating disorder with an eating disorder um, will seem like just a normal person living in our culture and because that's because eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors have become normalized because there's morality placed on body size 
Yes. Yes. And, and eating too, right? Just like people talk to you about your white bread and peanut butter. Mm-hmm. Oh, so judgy about eating people. Just mm-hmm. Yeah. Bodies and food. Two things that I don't think we should comment on. In other no. people, unless to say amazing cheeseburger. Right. <laughs> I tend to say, um, and I, I also tell my clients and my children, anybody comments on your food, you say, mind your own plate. Anybody comments on your body, you say, mind your own body. Yeah. It's, not, it's not a lot to say, but at least it gets people like, oh, sorry, you know, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. yeah. As they say in I, Canada. <laughs> yeah. As we say over everything in Canada. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> I, um, it was, I recently saw, um, I forget where I saw it, maybe on Instagram. Um, you are working on a PCOS and GI workshop that I know the pilot is running in June. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the link between PCOS and GI and maybe a little bit about that workshop. Yeah, so uh, Julie Duffy Dillon, who is a fat positive dietitian who uh, specializes in polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is PCOS. Uh, and I have been um, colleagues slash friends for a while now. And um, my biggest group of clients typically have irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. And we found that a lot of times we're collaborating on cases because people with PCOS tend to now have IBS symptoms or vice versa. Really? Yeah. And so it was newer for me to see more PCOS clients pop up for me. Um, But she was seeing lots of folks with IBS and not knowing what to do. So what we thought we would do is give a free webinar on how to deal with complicated eating issues without a side of diet culture. Mm -hmm. And um, we did a free webinar. We thought we'd get like 20 people. There were over 400 people signed up. Oh my goodness. That's (laughs) amazing. Yeah. So we were like, oh, I think we... We got, got something, something here. Yeah. <laughs> People need information. So we decided we would run a pilot program, which starts actually May 27th and run, runs through June. It's a four-week live course um, called the Gentle Nutrition Blueprint for IBS and PCOS. And we're going to go through um, – the first week we're going to talk about carbohydrates with both um, uh, uh, syndromes. And then the next week we're going to talk about protein and how to uh, incorporate that in the best way for both syndromes. And the third week, we're going to talk about diet culture and body image with these diseases that really make you feel like your body is betraying you or doesn't like you because you just can't trust when the bloating is going to come up or when you're going to need to be in the bathroom all day. Mm -hmm. Um, So we want to focus on people finding some compassion for that ever-changing body. And then um, the last session, we're focusing on supplements, probiotics, prebiotics, and really helping people narrow down their tote bag full of supplements that they get yeah. from all the different practitioners <laughs> yeah. to see what they really need. So that's, that's where we're starting. Um, and I'm hoping that the folks that participate really get a lot out of it. Um, we're having a lot of fun planning it. So I'm hoping it, it goes well for those folks too. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, I love the the topics and just how you've broken them down. Um, having, you know, a little knowledge in both, I can totally see how that would happen. That's very cool. I am so impressed. There were 400 people signed up for a webinar. Yeah. And we, we were like, we were thrilled. We're like, oh, yeah. there are people that really need this. We did it. We found, we found the people. <laughs> well, it was interesting because when I first saw it, I thought, oh, I hadn't ever seen anything with 
those two syndromes together. Um, and then, so I, I read a little bit about it was, and then uh, when you said you, they, you were seeing um, the linkage, I hadn't thought about that at all. So um, yeah. there's definitely not a lot out there if people are looking. So I think this is very cool. Yeah. Um, are you hoping to possibly run it if the first time successful? in the future yeah either we're we're either going to run it live we're definitely recording it so we may put it out there um in a recorded version mm -hmm. um or we may decide that it works better as these you know some small groups uh, so that there's a lot of time for questions and answers in yeah. each session so that's we're we're playing it by ear to see which works best for the group and then we're gonna we're definitely gonna do more of it for sure Awesome. So if you want to send me links, we'll definitely put that in the show notes for people if they're interested. Sure. And also just for reference, if anyone wants to go back and listen to uh, Julie Duffy Dillon, she was on episode 13 of this podcast. And I, I just adore her as well. She's so lovely. Yeah, she is. She is. <laughs> um, so I'd like to be kind of mindful of time because again, I know that we're kind of squeezing you in around lunch. So I'm so appreciative of that. So I like to end the podcast with the question of what is nourishing you now? Well, right now we are in the midst of a pandemic mm -hmm. in case people are listening in years from now. Um, and at least where I am, we are at week 10. Today is marks the 10th week of being home. Um, and the 10th week of not wearing pants, which I know, is wonderful. And I think, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what's nourishing me is wearing clothes that are comfortable and stretchy and don't have to conform to what society expects of me to wear as a professional out in the world. Mm -hmm. um, because I have IBS too, and it feels way more comfortable wear, to wear loose clothing than it does to wear fitted clothing. Yeah. Um, so that that's nourishing me now. And I would say the, the other thing that's nourishing me is maybe uh, much to their dismay, but I have a 17 year old and a 20 year old and I'm getting to have dinner with them every night. And I got to celebrate my son's birthday with him where he would normally be at college. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm sort of savoring this moment of having my big kids around all the time um, where normally they probably wouldn't even be in the house. So I'm enjoying that. And, and it is very nourishing. I um I love that. It's so interesting that you say that because I um I have been doing the last I think two years at work where I'm like I'm going to wear clothes that people are going to call pajamas because I hate waistbands. They hurt all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And so I've discovered that my wardrobe hasn't changed much during the pandemic. <laughs> I'm like, well, then well, you need to share your manufacturers with me because I have yet to find something that doesn't look ridiculous that I can walk out of the house in yet. I know I am like overall queen. I'm not gonna lie. That uh -huh. <laughs> I love the jumper phase right now. It's yes. beautiful. <laughs> um, and uh, it's so nice to be at home for dinner. We we are the same right now. I'm actually eating dinner with my kids because we're not on weird schedules and stuff. So I could see how beautifully nourishing that would be as well. It definitely is. Um, so. Where can people find you if after listening to all this amazing stuff that you do, they are interested in learning more? Sure. Well, they can find me on my website at www.goodnessgraciousliving.com. And on there, I have um, blog posts and recipes, but I also have links to some freebies 
um, to help people get started if they're looking to get off the diet cycle or even to get some help with irritable bowel syndrome. And then I also have some course online courses there as well, one for getting off the diet cycle and one for helping to become symptom-free with IBS. Uh, and then they can find me on social media. I would say I'm probably most active on Instagram, which is at Goodness Gracious Living. But I also pop on to Twitter, and that's at GG Living. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk and chat and share your wisdom. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank Super you. So I hope you get that as well. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. This has been a lovely chat. Oh, I'm glad. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Nourish Circle. Don't forget to like us on iTunes or Spotify and subscribe so that you never miss an episode.